We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Politics Friday, and it's uh, with Coach Bob. All right. And Hampton Keithley. Coach Bob is in Colorado, and I'm in Dallas, but... We can do this stuff with Zoom. So, okay, and we've been we've been going through uh, using Van Drunen as our guide. His book is called Politics After Christendom, and uh, just just a guide. Is this the post-Christian era? Is that what he's saying in there? Yes, yes. So, it, my goal with the material is to lay a foundation for understanding what's going on in America. We do that also, Hampton, with our, our worldview studies with Carl Truman, right? On the, the right. rise and triumph of the modern self is also really doing the same kind of work. Although true Truman's is more uh, cultural analysis, whereas Van Drunen is more political analysis, which you really have to apprise yourself of these tools so that you you can have a correct understanding of what's going on in America today. So when you watch the news, it's not simply a knee-jerk reaction, you know, oh, that's crazy. I, I hate what those guys are doing and so on, it, which is how I typically react. But you need to understand why all of that. So you happening. mentioned the word tools just now, and you talked about with the Truman book that we're trying to get some tools for analysis. Tools of cultural analysis. That's and one right. of them over on the Truman book was cultures are defined by what they forbid. Yes. I think that was one of your tools. So yeah. over here on the Van Drunen side of things, what have we learned of any tools yet? I mean, we talked about the Noahic Covenant last time. Yep. So just quickly to review, and really it's not so, so much tools oriented for Van Drunen. That's more for, for Truman. Okay. 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 But but with Van Drunen, we the way we began laying the foundation is that government itself, biblically speaking, so through a biblical lens, is legitimate, but it's provisional. That is, you should you need to have governments in, right. in order to fulfill our mandate as God's image to rule the earth. You got to have a, a government to do that, to facilitate all the steps along the way. So it, it's legitimate, but it's provisional in that it's not the what we see today is not the ultimate government. The ultimate government is when Jesus arrives again 
sits on his throne in Jerusalem and rules the earth. So in the meantime, these things that we see are provisional. They're legitimate, but they're provisional. Second, they're common. That is, they apply to everyone, but they're accountable. Just because you sit in a chair, so to speak, doesn't mean you don't answer to someone. There is an ultimate judge. And you see that all the way through the scripture. So that's that's what we spent our first session on. Our second session, we spent on the Noahic covenant. And, and we'll refer to that again today. And today, what we're going to look at is it's a critical subject. It's important that we understand this. It's uh, what Van Drunen and I would both call natural law. So we'll look at we'll look at those things in the scripture. But <clears throat> I want to start with an analogy. As you know, Hampton, I have varied interests. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go in the direction that you're laughing about. I'm going to go in a, a different direction. But there's nothing. Well, more... Did you like my uh, <laughs> yes. I sent you of the Bob Lyle that's running for Congress or yeah, why? How did that apply? Why was he associated? Why? Why was there like a picture okay. of a Sasquatch for, or something? Yeah, for the audience uh, driving through the Dallas Metroplex, there were a bunch of political signs: vote for Bob or Susie or whoever. And and there were these three Sasquatches: a big, tall one, a medium size, and a small one, like a father, mother, and child. Yeah, and it said, "Vote for," I think. Bob Lyle or Bill Bill Lyle or something, and uh, you know, it worked because I couldn't tell you a single <laughs> name of anybody else on any of those large, you know, signs yeah. except yeah. for Mister Sasquatch. And he uh, got your so it that, was just to get your attention. So it gets. I think it's just to get your attention, and I thought of you when I saw it. So I just <laughs> and then then I told you my nickname in certain circles. Right is. Bob Squatch. Bob Squatch. So we, we'll get into that someday. But <clears throat> one of my other interests is, as strange as it may sound, the study of electricity. And right. <clears throat> so one are of my... Are you a Tesla guy then? I, I think that guy is one of the most amazing people in history. So let me draw an analogy uh, from Tesla. So... And it was around 1905, between 1900, 1905, when Tesla was probably at his peak. Around that same time, here comes Einstein with the theory of relativity. And Tesla and a number of his cohorts, you know, that were kind of looking at things the same way he was, said, I'm putting it all in my words. Hampton, but but essentially they said that's not exactly right. It, it's not as if they thought Einstein was wrong. I mean, it wasn't clear-cut categories of right and wrong. It, it was more that that is not the proper perception of what we're seeing, of what we're dealing with. And in that <clears throat> debate that went on for a few years, the vast majority of people working in that area went the Einstein route. Since then, so the last 100 plus years, there's been almost no progress 
in in the field of electricity. Almost none. I mean, certain technological advances like how to propagate certain things, that happens, of course. But the fundamental understanding of electricity has not advanced in over 100 years. You know, of course, every uh, branch of study has its uh, national and international meetings, right? You and I, for instance, now and then we'll go to uh, ETS and, and things like that. Well, right. so there is for electricity also. And around that time, around 1900 at the worldwide meeting of all the electrical guys, they thought it's written in the minutes of that meeting that they were on the verge and by the verge, meaning within one year of having everything electrically figured out, everything. And I don't think they were wrong. But what happened, here comes Einstein, they all go down the wrong path. The essential difference was Tesla uh, fundamentally believed in what they called the ether. And, and another great guy about Tesla's time, the IQ of these guys, Hampton, I mean, it must have just been, you, you couldn't even measure it, they were so sharp. So there was a guy that ran GE at that time, a, a diminutive guy, sort of had a, a deformity, a Swiss-German guy originally, but over here at the time, of course, Steinmetz, Charles Proteus Steinmetz. And he was the guy who put the math to Tesla. Um, but both of those guys were pretty much looking at things the same way. Here's an example. In 2008, at MIT, it was front page news. They got a light bulb to light up without being plugged into anything. The furthest they could get away from their energy source was eight feet. 2008, MIT. In 1900, Tesla did that from 120 miles away. Don't you think they would go back and look at what Tesla was doing? Wouldn't that be the way forward? But they don't do that because they buy into the Einstein stuff. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying- so, There are so many uh, other ways that that's true, like in the medical field, you yes. know, with, with yes. um, homeopathy, yep. they will not yep. go down that route. No, regardless of the results. The virus, we could talk about the virus and the vaccines. We're gonna, we're gonna, okay. <laughs> okay. But the, the point is, so the fundamental difference was Tesla firmly believed in what they call the ether. So the ether is the, the unseen world of, of, you might describe it as how everything really works, like the lines of force, what an right. electron actually is, and, and things like that. He firmly believed in that. You know, the movie, The Matrix, <coughs> it's kind of a fun movie, but, but the principle behind that is, is much more powerful than people really believe. It's, it's a very similar concept to what Tesla was dealing with. They still run into Tesla's patents today quite often. When people go to patent something, they'll go, eh, well, 120 years ago, Tesla patented that, you know? <laughs> oh, my. I just read yesterday or the day before that, um, who's the electric light guy that was Tesla's? Um, Edison. Uh, Edison. Edison didn't actually invent the electric light. He bought the patent from somebody else who did. Well, I, did, I didn't know that. <laughs> 
So but I don't know it, if that's true. I just I just thought it's funny that we're talking about this and I had just just this week read it. Yeah. And of course, you know, anybody who knows about Tesla knows he used to work for Edison and they they butted heads after a while it, for the same reasons. You know, T Edison essentially he was a very interesting guy and a genius in his own right. But Edison was very interested in making money. Right. And and Tesla was much more interested in in figuring things out. And eventually they they butted heads. But be that as it may, here's here's why I give that illustration. So it, the point of that illustration was the the importance of the ether, this unseen substance. So when we study natural law, what I believe the scriptures can be viewed as in one sense, I mean, it's flat out is just the word of God. But an, another way to view it within that context is the, the scripture is a reflection of God's ether. The, God's moral structure of the universe is reflected in the scriptures. And, I, and I'll show you directly why, why I'm saying that in a little bit. But that, that's an important concept. When you see, for instance, uh, thou shall not kill, thou shalt not steal. It, of course, right? There's no one that disagrees with that. Now, in principle, now they may act differently, but no right. one disagrees with that in principle. And that's because- They certainly don't want somebody to kill them or steal from them. <laughs> right, and you they're know. certainly not gonna proclaim any differently, right? right. They're not gonna right. stand up right. in front of a crowd and go, hey, we're gonna do away with, with the murder laws. Now you can murder whoever you want. Okay, no one's gonna say that. And that's because we are created as the universe was created, we're all operating fundamentally on this natural law. So let's look at that. The, the first time to review one more time, we looked at is, is government legitimate? And the second time we looked at the Noahic covenant. Now we're gonna look at natural law, okay? okay. So I'm gonna read my own definition of natural law. It's not Van Drunen's, We'll, we'll read what his is in a little bit, but I, I want to give you mine first. Natural law is the unseen but clearly felt reflection of the fabric of God's moral universe. Okay, so now we're going to dive into uh, Van Drunen's chapter on natural natural law. Here's a, a sentence. I propose a classical Christian answer. And the question he has raised is this. Well, if, if things are really based on the Noahic covenant, if what we see in human societies today is actually a reflection of that, what we covered last time, then how do people know that? For instance, I grew up in an unbelieving family. Well, how did my family teach strongly, by the way, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, right? Most families teach right. that. Mind, you know, it had nothing to do with, in their thinking with the Lord, but boy, that was taught strongly in my family. So Van Drunen's raising the question, well, how, how did Bob's family know that? So he, here's his answer. All human beings know their moral responsibilities before God through natural law. So that's what he's going to describe 
in this chapter. One way we could categorize what we're going to look at here is what is it? What is natural law? Where do we see it? And how do you access it? Okay. So here's Van Drunen's definition of natural law. By natural law, I refer to the idea that God makes known the basic substance of his moral law through the created order itself. Human beings, therefore, know this law simply by virtue of being human, even apart from access to scripture or other forms of special revelation. They know it through their natural capacities as they live in the world. So, for instance, <clears throat> do you remember a biblical scene where um, back in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, the readers, you know, starting in about uh, right after chapter 10, so starting with 11, uh, get introduced to Abraham, <laughs> who's, who's originally Abram. Right. And apparently Abram's wife, Sarah, <laughs> Sarai at that time is beautiful. <laughs> and right. he's concerned that as he travels around, he's going to run into trouble because, you know, some of these more powerful players, Abimelech, for instance, are going to see his wife and they're going to want that. So they're going to kill Abraham and take his wife. So, you know, his plan for getting around those obstacles is, hey, uh, Sarah, I just tell them you're my sister. <laughs> that way, you know, they won't kill me. Right. So that happens. Abimelech, king of Gerar, takes Sarai into his like harem, essentially. And things start going really bad in Gerar, right? His whole kingdom starts to crumble and God appears to him in a dream. And Abimelech's essentially, you know, hey, what? why is this happening to me? And uh, God says, well, you've got Abram's wife. And of course, you know, like you or I would say, well, he told me, you know, it was his right, sister. So right. I, it, and you could understand his position, right? Like, I, man, I thought it was his sister. So anyway, he, uh, Abimelech will say to Abram, Abram at that point, you know, you have done to me what should not be done. Well, how's he know that? How's a pagan king talk with God and come to the mutual understanding? Hey, what I did was wrong, but I'm, but I'm innocent. You know, I didn't have the correct information. There's another sideline to this. We'll pick up in just a second, but he knows, he knows right. the natural law. He knows don't commit adultery. You can't take someone else's wife. He knows that. The same thing happens with Pharaoh, by the way, with, with Abram. He, he runs the same scheme down there. Hey, tell him you're my sister. Same thing happens if Pharaoh says the same thing. You know, you shouldn't do that. You, you're lying about who this is. They fundamentally know the natural law. The, the other thing that's interesting about Abimelech is, you know, he, he throws his hands up, so to speak. And, you know, like people do on the basketball court when they foul somebody, you know, they instantly throw their hands up like, oh, I didn't touch the guy. I didn't do it. It's almost a universal symbol of guilt, you know, when you, when you hold your hands up like that. But he metaphorically does that, right? He says to God, hey, I, I didn't know. You know, he told me um, that it was his sister and I didn't touch her. And God says, this is so critical god says i didn't let you touch her you know like don't don't be bringing your righteousness to me 
Abimelech. I didn't let you. You know, you yeah. you, you would have had I not intervened. You know, it's 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 pretty interesting. But regardless, the the first point is uh, mankind knows the the natural law intuitively. So what you see in the scriptures are you know, reflections of those deeper truths, in other words. Here's some more of Van Drunen. And it, it, there's countless references to this. You know, it just doesn't make sense to read all the references right now, but they, they're all- you mean, by biblical, the, you mean biblical references? Biblical references, thank okay. you. So the New Testament also speaks of the moral understanding of people who are outside the church and lack exposure to biblical revelation. The Pauline epistles provide a number of examples. Paul exhorts believers to conduct themselves in ways that meet the approval of non-Christians. While these are obviously not exhortations to simply conform to pagan practices, they do presume that non-Christians can make valid judgments about moral behavior Paul also calls Christians to honor patterns of authority in their households that reflect long-standing Greco-Roman ethical traditions. He urges them to adhere to contemporary notions of public decorum and social propriety. For instance, uh, back to the Old Testament real quick, when, when you read the scriptures and you do some comparative studies, for, for instance, the the book of Proverbs is not the only book on wisdom in ancient societies. Egypt has vast texts about wisdom. Babylon, the same thing. I promise if we took the labels off, like for instance, if, if you could excise the book of Proverbs from the Bible without anyone knowing and insert either the Egyptian Proverbs or the Babylonian Proverbs, and then handed the Bible back to the guy, he wouldn't know the difference. Really? I, 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 it sounds really strange. You, in a sense, you, you would know if you've been reading the Bible for, you know, a couple decades. Without that, you, you wouldn't know. They're pretty much saying the same thing. I'm, I'm not in all, at all um, criticizing inspiration. Obviously, the biblical Proverbs are from God, but... What's but they're very all, similar sounding. Very, in, very similar. So natural laws known, known to everybody. How about this? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 8. This is so good. We'll start in about verse. Let me find. I've got a new Bible here I'm reading, Hampton. Somebody gave it to me. I was oh, like, yeah, the... Yeah, the parent of one of my swimmers gave me this thing i think it's they signed it for me even i think it says net bible so you know how when you uh, proverbs 8 uh, we'll start in about verse 21 or 22 the lord created me at the beginning of his works before his deeds of long ago from eternity, I have been fashioned. From the beginning, from before the world existed, when there were no deep oceans, I was born. When there were no springs of overflowing, springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were set in place, before the hills, 
I was born. Before he made the earth and its fields, or the topsoil of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the horizon over the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he secured the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea his decree that the waters should not pass over his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was his delight by day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in the habitable, habitable part of his earth and delighting in its people. So now there's a shift and he starts talking about the people, right? So now children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. And yet what he had just described was the physical creation of the universe, it, you know, through, through the eyes of wisdom, that wisdom was there delighting in the works of God concerning the physical creation. And now wisdom all of a sudden says, you know, delight in my ways to the people as if there's really no distinction between the physical creation and the moral aspect of the universe. And there isn't. And, and that was my point with Tesla. That's how he was electrically looking at the world, that fundamentally what you had to understand was the ether. And when it comes to natural law, what you fundamentally <coughs> have to understand is that the physical creation, our, our universe that we live in reflects one-to-one, -one, exactly, the moral creation of the universe such that one of the issues with sin and the prophets will say these types of things but one of the issues with sin is that it tears the fabric of the moral universe right you're, you're creating chaos when you sin when you walk in wisdom and righteousness holding the lord's hand you're strengthening the fabric of the universe Things hold together. Things work as they were originally designed. When you get off that path, you're tearing apart the natural universe and then chaos ensues. So natural law, once again, is a reflection of the creation. It's, it's inherent. So the third point we were going to discuss is, so how do you access it? How, how do people grasp the natural law. Remember this, <clears throat> concerning wisdom, Solomon says in Proverbs, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there's another verse he writes that pertains to the beginning of wisdom. And, he's, and in the other verse, it says, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. <laughs> so in okay, other I'll words, Right. So it, it, it takes uh, discipline. It, it's naturally wired into you, but you have to, by discipline, apply yourself to understand how that works in the world. For instance, uh, the person in the Bible that's most associated with, with wisdom, I would say, is Jesus. But second is Solomon. Right. So and look at the correspondence there. Who's the son of David? 
well, Solomon was originally, <laughs> but yeah. the ultimate son of David is Jesus, right? Both characterized by wisdom. So uh, did you remember the queen of the South, Candace, coming up to visit Solomon? And she's just blown away by what she's been heard. And so she, she attends him in court for a while and then just announces, you know, how, how blown away she is. She says, you know, the half of what you have here was was not told to me. And she's referring to his wisdom, but she's referring to a particular manifestation of Solomon's wisdom. It wasn't just that Solomon was like a Tesla guy, right? That could understand the natural world, though he did. And there are statements to that effect. What she was primarily impressed with was his administration. Imagine that. The ultimate biblical example of wisdom was the administration of Solomon's kingdom. And with that administration, it's not like Israel was laden with uh, natural resources. They, they were fine, but they, they didn't exceed other countries. But why was their wealth so vast? It was because their administration was wise right? They had the biblical laws. They, they reflected perfectly the natural law that sustains the universe. And that's the real source of wealth for any they nation. Had a, they had a ruler who was looking out for the best interest of the country, of the people. It wasn't just in it for his own, although he did have a thousand wives, but um, <laughs> he just wasn't in it for his own uh, advancement, I guess. <clears throat> oh no, what, what was his goal? When God appears to him in a dream, hey, you can ask me for what you right. want. Almost like genie, genie with the bottle sort of thing, almost, yes. right? That, yes. that sort of concept. Right. And he asks for wisdom. You know, I don't know how to, you know, their phrase for those kind of things. I don't know how to come out and go in. You know, I, I don't know how to, to run things. And, and God gave him that. And at the center of what, what God gave him was the, the value of the people, right? You, you look out for them. You do righteousness in your kingdom and I'll open up the, the storehouses of heaven. And they did. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is uh, in Solomon's day, silver had no value because there was so much gold. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just read that. I love that. So uh, the natural, so how do you access the natural law? You access it through wisdom. And we've been going long enough on this topic. Now I want to get to the vaccine, but we'll, we'll pick up that next time. All right. We'll, we'll look at how by wisdom you can perceive the natural law. We'll, yeah. Well, I, I'd like how you tied the, I mean, we kind of wandered around a bit and then it's like all of a sudden it tied back in where the way Solomon ruled was a lot closer to the way Christ will rule. Exactly. In the kingdom. And, and so if you do have good, political leaders you can have a pretty good life country here on earth you can approach that that's exactly right you know one of the larger themes that's going on in the whole flow of scripture during solomon's time you remember for instance you get three or four chapters just raw material straight on the construction of the temple why is there so much material 
on just the physical structure of the temple. And so what's behind that? And then what's behind that? The details of that. For instance, they're carving on the temple uh, pomegranates, th things like that, right? Scenes from a garden. What, how do they understand, Solomon and the craftsmen, what they're doing? Don't you think they're recreating the Garden of Eden? Maybe so. That's what they're and, doing. And, and, and that God gave the, the Spirit gave them special abilities it, to do that. To do that, yeah. That's exactly right. And so you remember in the garden, what happened in chapter three, God left. Originally, he was in the garden and he leaves because of sin, right? So when Solomon's building the temple, uh, the final act of dedication, what happens? God, God indwells the temple, right? right? He, co right. he comes back. You're seeing Eden recreated. That, that's the large theme that's really going on with that. And so then when you unite those themes that uh, Solomon was this unbelievable political administrator, that that was the main essence of his wisdom. A lot of things start coming together with that. Right. It's, it's powerful. So, um, but let's, let's advance further next time. Cause what, oh, don't forget, this is politics friday and we don't always record on a friday but <laughs> this this is what so we're we going to talk politics now yes i was we, thinking we of have something, been, okay before ahead. you go to your vaccine i was thinking of a certain california senator female who was in you know you were saying that we don't um promote murder but Maxine gets close, doesn't she? Yes, she does. She with her incitement of of people to riot and all of those kind of things, which I think speaks a lot to how far our society has degraded. Oh yeah. Well, so um, then let's make this application because my goal is to to train ourselves and our listeners to think biblically about politics. What is the very first thing you see in the scriptures after God leaves the garden? What, what happens? He leaves in chapter three. What happens in chapter four of Genesis? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, the epitome of violence, right? When, when you remove God from your thinking, violence will be the, the natural reaction to that. The, the very destruction of the moral fabric of the universe will happen when you remove the Lord. Maxine has no, no concept of God that I, that I can detect. So they're, they're not going to have any problem with inciting violence. They're going to accuse others of doing what they're doing. You know, like, oh, Trump started a riot. He did not. not nothing even remotely like that. But she will. She can. Right. And she'll never be held accountable for that. OK, can we get to the vaccine or what else? Okay. Are you gonna throw? <laughs> so I have been aghast at what I'm hearing about the vaccine. And I'm I'm not a virologist, so I, I have to write through. Oh, well, then I don't have to listen to anything you have to say. <laughs> 
Well, but how many virologists are there? You know, that's not a gigantic field, right? We're, we're all dependent on them to some extent. So through wisdom, you have to discern who to listen to, right? You, you have to pick authorities that, that make sense to you. So for me, some of those would be, for instance, the guy that worked at Pfizer for most of his career left. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeadon, Michael Yeadon, British guy. Um, he left in maybe 2011 or so, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, nine, 10 years ago, but not, not didn't leave up in arms. You know, there was some gigantic issue. He literally will just describe, you know, I saw the wind blow in a different direction for my career. And so, so it was, you know, he, he left Pfizer, but not on bad terms. He, he, neither party was upset about that. Uh, I would listen to him. I would listen to uh, Vanden Bosch, the guy who runs, worked for, for Gates for a long time. Uh, but essentially, you know, Germany has the equivalent of our CDC and Vanden Bosch has run that for a few okay. years. And then another virologist named Judy Mikovits, she's one of my favorites. You remember in the 80s, Hampton, AIDS was front page news for quite a while, you know, a devastating right. disease. And you don't really hear too much about AIDS anymore. It's obviously still there, but it's not the devastation that it used to be. You know, there's ways to treat that and so on. That's primarily due to Judy Mikovits. And all these people work in teams, you know, no, no one works on their own. You really need a whole, a whole virology society to accomplish these goals. But she was prominent in that field. And let me tell you, she is an arch enemy of Anthony Fauci. Fauci threw her in jail one time for 10 days. No charges ever brought, just threw her in jail. And the reason was she was going to patent something before him. He's, there's unbelievable money in virology, particularly in the vaccine field. And that's what drives most of these issues, literally. You remember the scripture saying money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Yeah, love of money. But <laughs> but back to the point. Uh, so Mikovits, Vandenbosch, Yeadon, I would listen to those guys. And yeah. they're, if half of what they're saying is true, this is mind-blowing. The, the, the vaccines are mind-blowing. Judy Mikovits literally said, <clears throat> being interviewed, uh, said this vaccine, the vaccine will kill 50 million Americans. And the guy interviewing her like almost falls off his chair, you know, and he goes, 15 million? And she goes, no, 50. This, this vaccine is, I can't see it helping you. I, every time I hear, you know, the phrase, this stuff is safe and effective, I'm like, no, I don't see that at all. I, I see this as devastating. It's not a normal vaccine. And the whole whole world of vaccines, that takes a while to even grasp the, a rational context for, for these discussions. But I know and you're- that's all, just Americans. Right. And if the right. rest of the world is giving this these vaccines, then- that's a whole lot more. Right. And um, I lost my video contact with you. Sorry, I hit some button. But but anyway, um, I can hear you. OK, so e there's something behind that. 
if the vaccines are that deadly and keep this in mind, when you look something up like on the CDC and you see uh, adverse reactions, remember I, I worked for 12 years at the Vail Hospital on the IRB. My, my job was what, basically IRB institutional review board. Okay. So the job of the IRB is to oversee research at the, at a medical facility. So by the way, that little hospital and you know, Vail's a rather small community. Um, that little that's hospital. Like for, is that the Stedman clinic? That's right. Prominent research institution. So that little hospital does if I'm not mistaken, we were in the top four in the country in the volume of research it produced. So, you know, we were meeting all the time. Uh, when, they weren't skate, when they weren't skiing. <laughs> hey, all those guys, those guys work <laughs> unbelievable hours, you know. So some, sometimes the medical community, you know, gets, you think of them, they're actually doctors are laborers. They're not you know, there, there is a business aspect to it, but they're, they're almost like hourly labor. They work hard. Yeah. Man, I, I rarely saw my dad growing up. I mean, they, they don't work a 40 hour week. Those guys work about twice that and it's intense work. Um, but regardless, so we, we would read the studies and my job essentially was to read the study and make comments uh, to the effect, you know, the norm, Hampton's not going to understand what you're doing here. So you have to write this consent form in such a way that he understands. You got to take out all these medical terms. You know, when you say, oh, the lateral dorsal tibia, Hampton doesn't know what that is. You, you got to say the front of your shin or something like that, you know? Right. So 12 years of reading that stuff. And uh, so you'd learn how to establish, you know, a, how to even understand some of these the medical data that comes your way and so on. I'm telling you, these vaccines, oh my gosh. First of all, they should be giving you a consent form. And I don't think they do that. But this is not, these vaccines have never, it takes about 10 to 15 years to bring a, a vaccine product to the market because of the studies you have to go to. And it's not 10 to 15 years because they're, um, they're slow at their work or they're lazy. It's 10 to 15 years because that's how long it takes to do the proper study. So you can get a feel for the unintended consequences, you know, what might happen. The way a certain thing reacts in a Petri dish is not necessarily the way it's going to react in your body. So, well, and I think, didn't they spend 10 or 15 years on the SARS-1 vaccine and gave up and gave up it, it's a very difficult class of viruses to vaccinate for so this is a whole new approach that's never been tried it to my knowledge there were no human studies in it at all and to my knowledge at least one of the animal studies it killed every animal they tried it on how on earth do you morally go from that? You're looking in the killed every test animal you tried this on in one of the studies, and you're going to bring that to the human market. It's well, I heard an uh, interview of Fauci where he said that, and he was quoting the three different vaccines. This one had a 30,000 
person trial and this one had a 40 and this one had a 35 and so they did something uh yeah trial but yeah and my guess is they're they're messing with the language of that literally and i i don't he he wants you to understand that as if they did a human trial they did not they they would not have met the qualifications for that he's he's in a sense twisting it for you so they maybe they gave the vaccine to that many people and they didn't fall over dead immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's so something like that. So they're considering that it's been tested. Co- correct. They don't and know the long term effects. They had. Well, how could you? Right. How, right. how could you? And so, for instance, when you go to the CDC, this is what I was getting to earlier. And you look, you know, adverse events for, you know, some reaction, in other words, to the vaccine. You're talking about the bars type? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm talking about to the vaccine, adverse reactions to the vaccine. I know there's there's an actual website where those things are reported. Yeah. So keep this in mind. Whenever you see those numbers, there have been other studies done that uh, provide you with this data. One in a hundred adverse reactions are actually reported. Correct. I've heard that. So when, when you see those numbers, just multiply them by 100. The last numbers I looked at, boy, what was it? 3,000 people had died of the vaccine. Just multiply that by 100. I, I heard something the other day. I think Lori might have been the one who told me, but she was on that bars Bears site. And or, or there was a chart showing the number of people that had died each year. And they were down in the 70 and 80 range. But in, in 2021, which were only three and a half months in, yep. it was like 2,500 yep. versus, you know, a normal 70 to 80. Right. And so, you know, instead of a normal 70 to 80, we're on track for 10,000. And then if you say it's 1%. Right. Imagine that. And so here, here's the issue with the, the vaccine as I listened to uh, Mikovits explain it, right? So some of these vaccines are what they call messenger RNA vaccines, never been done in humans before. They're messing with your genome. They're putting stuff in your genes. They're, they're not just ramping up your antibodies, to fight this thing. And that's not, your antibodies are not really the very first thing that attacks a, a virus anyway. It's your killer, your natural killer cells, your T cells and stuff like that. But th- that's not what this vaccine is. This vaccine is going into your genome and programming it to respond to a certain protein that represents the virus. So in, in I, I'm putting it in my own terms, right? I'm from my IRB days. I'm I'm saying taking that research and trying to say it in a way that's understandable. So Mikovits's concern is this: once that's in you, guess what? Some of why evolution is a powerful concept in our cultures because some of that is right. Things do mutate. They just don't change into another organism, but but there is mutation that that exists. There's no question about that. This virus, it, which is RNA anyway, a much simpler form of DNA. It's like half of DNA. It it mutates quickly, and the 
what we call like the vaccine properties, you're not immunized against this thing. As soon as it mutates, it's a different virus in essence. And But your system genetically now is going to be so programmed to respond to, to the proteins of this virus, you're going to have a massive overreaction, she says. It is almost, it, it makes all the wisdom all the sense in the world to just fight this virus medically without vaccines. Like you've said, get some hydroxychloroquine, get some ivermectin, vitamin D, vitamin E. This is not that serious of a disease. It's, It's probably not even the level of a flu, but you get that vaccine you're going to respond, your body's going to respond off the charts to this thing and quite often kill you, according to Mikovits. So we'll have to wait and see how things play out. But I was unbelievably alarmed when, it, when I was listening to the guys I listened to in that field. Uh, and I just wish every, everybody knew that. I mean, for me, it's no big deal to take the next step and say, this is planned. It, it, these numbers are so staggering that it's on purpose. Their, their goal is not to preserve our culture and save lives. It, this looks very much like on purpose wiping people out. Well, I saw a video where a guy was showing that that CARES Act that Trump signed in the yep. end of March yep. last year which was what, two weeks after they shut everything down? Yeah. That, that thing was written, it's 18 months earlier. It was a House Resolution 748 or some number like that. And they had already planned on spending $6 trillion. Then they shelved it for a year and then the virus took off and they brought it back out and signed right. it. So if you hear things like that and you're like, how do we know it? What's true? Yeah, very, very hard to discern that. And that that gets back to our point of providing people with tools of analysis, right? Cultural tools of analysis, scientific tools of analysis, also that you can sharpen your Christian worldview and make some conclusions about what's happening, you know, what's going on on a grand scale. And it sure looks to me like, you know, knowing history and putting yourself in someone else's shoes is just a critical aspect of this. I don't go around Hampton, as you know, I I go around thinking, how can I hit this golf ball past 210 yards? You're already up to 300 yards, but there are people that go around thinking, how can I rule the world? They literally think that Adolf obviously thought that, right? Some of these politicians, it is not their goal to uh, how do I, like Solomon, how do I administrate the culture successfully? Uh, That's not their goal. That's not what they go to bed thinking about. They go to bed thinking about how can I grasp and maintain more power? That's how they think. And once, once you walk a mile in those shoes, you start to look at these crises that are man-made and you go that, it's got to fit into that plan. Well, and sometimes they say things that, um, like, never let a crisis go to waste. Yeah, so just say it flat out. 
did I tell you I was listening to, I think his name is N.D. Wilson? I get Wilson and Phillips confused sometimes, but I think it's N.D. Wilson. He wrote 100 Cupboards, kid's book. But he was talking about Paralandra, which is the second book in the C.S. Lewis's Silent, Out of the Silent Planet trilogy. Yeah. And his point was that the theme of that book, the underlying message of that book, is that we have a choice. We're either going to be servants or we're going to seek power. Yeah. And the power starts off as pure materialism. I just want to be able to buy whatever I want to buy because I need, you know, I want more money. Yeah. But that it never stops there, that it ends up becoming servants of Satan, basically, in that book. Yeah. And people don't certainly plan and start there, but that's where they end up. And they may not even be aware. Yeah. But I hear a lot of these different things all at the same time and kind of all starts coming together. Yeah. Well, one of the foundations of the United States, our political system, one of the premier principles was the freedom of the individual. You can watch that erode before your very sight from day to day. That's being taken away. It's because that the freedom of the individual will impinge on the power of the administrators, and they don't want that. So they will take those freedoms away from you because it, it hinders their goal of, of power. So we've got to be alert to those things. Okay. Well, we covered a lot today. So. We did. It's our most exciting day. <laughs> and hopefully the audio is better. It sounded better to me anyway. <laughs> I hope so. Sorry I can't see you. But, well, that's uh, okay. okay. I have a well, face for radio, as they say. Yeah, me, me too, boy. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, till next time. Till next time, Hampton. Okay, bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.